From the world beyond tomorrow comes one of the galaxy's most intrepid adventurers. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we are reading The Ginger Star by Lee Brackett. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is badass. So the version of this book we have is a deluxe hardcover of the entire Book of Scathe trilogy, Ginger Star being just the first one. If this book is badass, the cover is definitely not. <laughs> the, the cover has a has a big friendly dog on it. <laughs> he looks like Clifford the Big Red Dog if he were white instead of red. Yeah, it's a guy holding a sword and a red-headed, scared woman behind him, defending her from just a huge, lovable dog. <laughs> it's like a gigantic puppy. The Ginger Star is the first of this trilogy, but unfortunately, it's not the first Eric John Stark book. Right. So once again, starting with the sequel... But I think they explained his backstory enough times that <laughs> I probably don't need to read the previous novels. Yeah, and it seems like this trilogy is the the preferred Eric John Stark <laughs> uh, books. The author of this book, Lee Brackett, might be one of the more famous authors, though not for this book or this series. Yeah, um, She was known as the queen of the space opera and was the first woman shortlisted for the Hugo Award. She was also a screenwriter for some movies, a lot of noir stuff, The Big Sleep, uh, The Long Goodbye, and something you might have heard of called The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> so she wrote the first draft of The Empire Strikes Back, uh, but I think right before she died. And then promptly died. <laughs> George Lucas tried to rewrite it, then gave up on rewriting it and gave it to someone else to rewrite it. It's not totally clear um, how much was changed, but supposedly pretty much all the, the main plot points were in the original screenplay by Lee Brackett. Her influence is what brought Star Wars that more space opera feel. Yeah. I imagine in her version, everyone is Han Solo. <laughs> Besides that, I think she wrote a ton of pulpy sci-fi in the 40s and 50s. On our podcast cover art, my outfit is actually based on one of her covers. Really? The, yeah, the cover of the Black Amazon of Mars. I think John Carpenter was also a fan. There's Sheriff Lee Brackett in Halloween that was named oh, after her. Interesting. It seems like she's more famous as a screenwriter than as a book writer. Yes, I think so. You just made like a really weird clicking sound before you said that. <laughs> like a like the evil bug man in Men in Black. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into the Ginger Star. So the Ginger Star stars Eric John Stark, 
<laughs> the best guy. <laughs> the man without a tribe. Oh my God. Mercenary for hire. His backstory is kind of like Tarzan. It is. And it's a little weird. It's not yeah. as cool <laughs> as I feel like it's supposed to. He's supposed to be the coolest guy. Oh, He's yeah. the coolest guy. But his backstories, I don't know. He grew up on some planet. I guess his parents and family were all killed by, I forget, <laughs> were they killed by the ape people? Uh, or maybe like some sort of solar event or something. Um. So then he was raised by the ape people. On Venus or Mercury or wherever this is, there's a native ape people. And I was trying to figure out whether they were people. Rico, you're not people. But I think they were more monkey than people. They had like long toes and weird stuff. Yes, he was raised by monkeys, not not Cro-Magnums or something. Yeah. Then people show up and kill all the monkeys and take him hostage as a scientific curiosity. So he's already a double orphan. <laughs> because he grew up on the harshest world with the harshest monkeys fighting the harshest giant lizards, he's so strong. He has such great <laughs> instincts. Other humans can't compare. So then he was rescued by someone named Ashton. Who's the best daddy. <laughs> yeah. Taught him how to be a human. And he's ultimate nice, ultimate patient. He's also like the president of the galaxy or something. <laughs> he's some sort of super important person. And he seems to be the only person that Eric John Stark actually cares about. The only thing he cares about in the world. Yeah, well, his monkey family and his regular family were killed. And now this book starts. He's about to become a triple orphan. <laughs> Ashton has gone missing. So Ashton has disappeared on the planet Scathe, which is a newly discovered backwater planet. The planet is, it's the dying planet genre of book. Like post-apocalyptic too. Like this planet has already had their technological peak and some disaster, something has caused them to go into decline. I think it's just, just entropy <laughs> where okay. their, their sun is dying. They have a red sun that's dying. They've used up all their resources over time, they've forgotten everything they've learned. Yeah. In the technological peak, there was a bunch of bioengineering going on, but that's now lost. So there's all these separated trees of humanity that have evolved into different hybrids and strange creatures, a.k.a. dwarves, elves. <laughs> Not quite, but... Um... There's kind of a lot going on on this planet. Uh -huh. There's a lot of um, different groups of people, like small nations of people, and um, the bioengineering also allowed people to live in the diverse climates that are on this planet. 
So this was something I actually really liked about this book was how diverse and big of a planet this was. Yeah. It's not just like, okay, here's the desert planet, here's the ice planet, and everything is one climate and one government. Yeah. I thought all the different peoples and ways of life were pretty interesting and well-realized. But the basic structure is that there is a leading political faction called the Lord's Protector, who mostly control the other nations, and they live in a hidden citadel where you can't get to them, and they're treated like gods or more than human. And they have a sort of police force called the Wandsmen. Who are also sort of holy figures, um, can't be touched, and have complete authority wherever they are. The weapon they use to keep people in line are the Farers, which are a large group of people who completely live off the state. They don't work or make any money, uh, but are provided for by everyone else. And they are just a giant mob (laughs) and use mob violence to get whatever they want. Yeah, you you pay them in food and they'll start riots and mob violence for you. I kind of imagined them looking like the people from Borderlands. Yeah. They seem to fit the most into that post-apocalyptic setting where they're just kind of like piecing scraps together for their outfits and things like that. You learn all these things piecemeal throughout the book. It's never told to you in a straightforward information dump. But at some point in the history of Scathe, the Lord's Protector swept through the continent, the planet, something, and brought up all the slaves and lower classes of the different nations to the privileged state of the Farers. And over time, the position has sort of reversed instead of evening out where everyone who was in power is now a slave or, you know, a common working man that has to pay for the farers. Some of these oppressed communities are seeking asylum off-planet because this takes place in a space opera galaxy with many planets and planetary empires. There's the Galactic Union. They're, They're trying to leave to join that. Which would mess up the whole system of farers on the planet Scathe. So Ashton is space president, negotiator, (laughs) I don't know, comes to the planet to deal in terms, and he gets kidnapped by the Lord's Protector and the Wandsman. So here comes Eric John Stark to the rescue. Yeah, he's going to kill everybody until he gets his daddy back. So through his expert espionage techniques and super cool guy spy moves, he manages to attract the attention of Wandsman Gelmar, which of course is exactly what he wanted to happen. Basically, he just wanders around like bait. That was his plan. (laughs) But he's so cool, he knows he could have gotten out of any trap. Um, okay. And Wandsman Gelmar is is the main bad guy in this story. On the planet, Gelmar is, uh, has a lot of power. He's a very holy guy. Um, he's less evil than the other Wandsmen. He's just more an authority of the Lord's Protector. 
And he's not accustomed to being challenged or touched in any way, so... Yeah, he's not super strong or anything. Stark, like, punches him. He's like, whoa, I can be punched? <laughs> what? What is this? Um, and, yeah, he just... Stark pretty much just jumps at him and pushes him into the ocean off a cliff. And that's where we meet the children of the sea. Stark is using the classic interrogative technique where they both end up in a dangerous situation. And he just holds Gelmar there while the children of the sea are approaching. And Gelmar tells him where Ashton is being kept. And then Stark lets him escape back to the shore, but does not have enough time himself so he is going to have to fight one of the children of the sea so the children of the sea were some kind of horrible barking seal people (laughs) did they have tentacles also i don't know they were truly horrifying stark has to fight one he's the coolest guy so he defeats it easily just imagine being underwater at night wrestling A half dolphin, half muscle man (laughs) with sharp teeth. (laughs) This is truly terrifying. But no problem for Stark. So after he gets away from the seal guys, that's when he meets Yerod. Yerod? Yerod. (laughs) The $5 foot long guy. (laughs) No. So Yerod and his band... Just like a pretty cool team of guys. Basically, they are the Fellowship of the Ring, and you meet them all. (laughs) Yerod is Aragon or Gandalf. Somewhere between Aragon and Gandalf. (laughs) Hawk is Boromir, but cool. (laughs) He's like mean Boromir. I guess Boromir's mean, but he's meaner (laughs) than Boromir, but also cool. Who are Merry and Pippin? There's the two brothers that you can't even distinguish between them, and they have two names that are similar, and they just call them the brothers. Oh, okay. That's Merry and Pippin. And then there's also a couple women in the group that don't have Tolkien parallels because, you know, <laughs> Tolkien. Um, and then there's an evil lady named Baya who is Smeagol. Yeah, she's like a, a grubby little sneak following <laughs> them around. So... We find out that there's a prophecy that's about Stark coming to this planet as the Dark Man, who will deliver Scathe to a new age and save everyone from the Wandsmen. And I think it's pretty funny that Stark is just annoyed by this. (laughs) He's just going to get in the way. Yeah. He can't be bothered about anything. He finds everything annoying. (laughs) But that's cool. (laughs) Being annoyed is cool. Yeah, he's just so cool. Just, um, he's not tied down to anything, you know. Unfortunately, the book just moves way too quickly, and we don't really get to spend enough time with all these characters in the Fellowship. But even in the small amount of time you spend with them, they all manage to at least be somewhat multidimensional characters. I think part of the problem is that Stark doesn't really care about anyone in this group, so it's hard for us the reader to care about them when anything happens to them. Well, I think I cared even though Stark didn't care. (laughs) But 
Like, I don't need Stark to care for me to care about something. But I think the problem is, is that because Stark didn't care, he didn't spend time chatting it up with everyone. So he couldn't learn their whole life story. (laughs) Yeah, everything's from his perspective, which is like, uh, this is all annoying and not as cool as me. So who cares? Well, he's he's driven. He's on a quest (laughs) and all these people are just going to get in his way. All right. Um, okay, so they continue on to Ernan, which is where they're from, and this is one of those communities that is very oppressed under the current system, and they're basically slaves for everyone else. Um, they're the only ones producing resources, and um, they're the ones that want off the planet. They're all captured, and... Brought to a public execution. And Yerod is killed. And we've probably only been with Yerod for 10 pages. <sighs> it's kind of like Gandalf, but he doesn't come back. That would have been kind of cool if he did, though. If we cared about him. Yeah. And then he wasn't dead and he did do something at the end. But no, he's he's dead. He's dead. Part of the public execution also involves Gareth, who is a prophet, seer, wise woman. person who came up with this prophecy about the Dark Man was also Gareth, who was Gareth's mother. But she's dead. Everyone in this family is named Gareth. All the seers in this family are named Gareth. It's just one long line of Gareths. But the current Gareth is young and hot, so... But I got a little bit confused about that because... Of course you did. There there are too many Garrett's. (laughs) Uh, So she's supposed to be, like, publicly humiliated also during this event. But um, she kind of turns it around on them a little bit. She planned ahead. And instead of um, everyone being executed, there's a little bit of a revolt. Yeah, Yared is a hero in this town. And so is Gareth. So publicly executing them might have been a bad idea. <laughs> so they're all freed, except for Yared is dead. And then the what's left of the party goes to Isvand, which is a town of mercenaries with no allegiance to anyone except money. <laughs> Along the way, what, someone in the party, uh, Kazimni, was telling like legends kind of about before the apocalypse... Um, all the stories about their old technology has become kind of myths and stuff like that. But he also gives his Yelp reviews of Isvand. Thieves and robbers, he said, of the innkeepers and of the accommodations. They stink. 2.5 stars. (laughs) And then uh, they meet some merchants who are trying to get them to go north with them in their caravan. But... He seems pretty suspicious, so they decide to go without him. Yeah, slavery is a thing here. So then they encounter a bridge and get trapped on the bridge by the the horrible bridge trolls <laughs> that, that run the bridge. And the merchant caravan catches up, saves them, and then immediately enslaves them. <laughs> so They just keep getting captured and then keep going the direction. They're always going towards the citadel. They just keep getting captured, being brought to the Citadel, <laughs> then they escape, and then they keep going to the Citadel. Yeah. Lee Brackett is just one of those railroading DMs. 
We're going to get to the Citadel one way or another. Spent a lot of time designing the Citadel encounter. We're going to the (laughs) Citadel. I don't want to sit in town buying, getting drunk (laughs) in taverns the whole game. While they're enslaved by this merchant caravan, we meet the Corn King. (laughs) Which is just a name Stark gives to him. He's not the Corn King. Stark just calls him the corn, like, decides he's the corn. So the corn king uses his corn magic, (laughs) and he freezes all of the merchants. Why does he have corn magic? He doesn't have corn magic. (laughs) Why did he have magic at all? Well, Stark says he's seen magic in many forms on all of his different adventures. But he's never seen corn magic. He has seen corn. That's why he calls him the corn guy. (laughs) Because okay. apparently being a corn king is a is a trope throughout the universe. <laughs> there's many corn kings. But there's no corn. They live in a frozen tundra. <laughs> also, we should say that these aren't really humans. They're like little goblins. Were they little? Yeah, they're very short. Wow. Well, they were they weren't dwarves because they're dwarves later, and they weren't goblins because they're goblins later. They're, maybe they're hobbits. Okay. Corn King tells them how to get to the Citadel, or he's going to take them there. Uh, But they have to go through some spooky mountains. They have to pass through the mountains of Mordor. I think they were called the Witch Fires. Then there's another part called the Bleak Mountains. Yes. It's very bleak. So I think the Witch Fire Mountains have these crystalline peaks that reflect the aurora borealis so they look like the sky is on fire from both sides or something it's pretty cool and then the bleak mountains are just brown so bleak but the pass through the mountains of mordor is guarded by cannibal dwarves (laughs) and they pretty much wipe the party except um stark gareth and hawk yeah marion pippin die Hawk's shield mate Brecca dies. Everyone dies except for... Well, the the Corn King and their party also live, but then because they lost, they decided Stark isn't the Dark Man anymore, and the cannibal dwarves just let them leave. And what do you know? Gelmar is hanging out with the dwarves. He takes Stark from being captured by dwarves to being captured by him, and he's going to take him to the Citadel. (laughs) Then... They run into the children of Scathe, our mother. Which are almost... This whole thing is very similar to the goblins in The Hobbit. Okay, but they're not like goblins. And while they were described, I kept thinking that they were just people who are wearing, like, fur coats because they live in the mountains. But they're actually animals who are furry and have fur on them. They're like furry goblins. They look like ermine. I don't know what that is as an They're animal. like weasels. They're like giant weasels. Oh, so they look like that meme of that animal going like this. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you know, that one. They look like those sassy ferrets in the sweaters. <laughs> I don't think they look like that. Yeah. They giant, wiry, weasel people. With white fur coats. This is what they look like. No. Because they they have like long snouts or something. Like um, little teeth coming out. This is what they look like. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> this is what they look like. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> they capture the entire party, including Gelmar. They get captured again. And the children of Skathar Mother do some telepathy on Stark. So they, like, read all of his memories. He allows them to read his memories. Oh, right, right. He would never be telepathied. <laughs> That's right. He's too cool for that. And he's done this before, so. And then they, uh, then they try to see the future. And I think they don't like what they see, so they decide they're going to kill Stark. But. He escapes. He escapes into their caves. Yeah, not like. Not out of the caves. Like Bilbo. <laughs> And so he's just running through these, like, museums of artifacts and stuff like that from pre-apocalypse times. Um, Lots of old, weird technologies and art artifacts and stuff like that. He runs into an old mink man with a loot. Who is Gollum. He runs into Gollum, but instead of a ring, he has a little loot. But he's not like Gollum. He's just a guy who's trying to <laughs> rediscover the lost art of yeah, loot playing. Gollum's just a guy trying to fish. But he he was minding his own business. So is and Gollum. Stark is like, I'm going to smash your loot unless you get me out of here. And uh, so then he has no choice. He can't lose his, his loot. This is the last loot. So uh, he leads Stark to the, the exit. And Stark kills a bunch of guards and escapes. A part of this escape is that he has to leave Gareth and Hawk behind. Right. Where he did have a moment where he felt bad (laughs) about leaving Gareth and Hawk behind because he does kind of like them. He's grown attached to them. So really, he isn't just the coolest guy. He has a heart, too. But he has to make the rational decision here and leave without them because he'll never make it with them dragging him down. Yeah, he doesn't care that much. He has to get out of there. Okay, so then he's out in the dangerous wastes. Um, Still going to the Citadel. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the wastes are dangerous because it's guarded by demons, which are actually just big fluffy dogs. Yeah. This is our scary monster on the cover. These are telepathic dogs. They typically defeat their enemies by just sending them fear. And so then they're too afraid and they get eaten by the dogs. But Stark beats it with his beast mind. (laughs) And then he kills the alpha dog. So now he's the alpha dog. Yeah, he rubs its nose in its poop so it doesn't poop in the house anymore. (laughs) I feel like he probably could have solved this scenario without just murdering this gigantic puppy, but... uh... I think it was wolf rules, not dog (laughs) rules, even though, based on the cover, it's clearly just a a happy Labrador dog. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so then he's in control of this pack, and he brings them to the Citadel... The the book concludes in less than 10 pages. It's like, okay, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah, we gotta go. Partially because he, he just tells the dogs to kill everyone. Because they have telepathy and fear everyone in place and then just eat them. Stark finds Ashton, rescues him. Mission accomplished. 
there's one one line it's like half of a sentence where he destroys the citadel and burns it down I think there's maybe a full sentence of him saying, I wonder what this world will be like without the Lord's protector. It concludes in like two pages. <laughs> from, get, from getting to the Citadel to the end is two pages? This was the, the line about destroying it. Stark set about destroying the Citadel as well he could, and it was well enough. The end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... How did he destroy it? What did he do? Just did it as well as he could. It was good enough. Destroyed. Um, But Gareth and Hawk are not here. That is the seed for book two, is he wants to go find Gareth and Hawk. The end. So this book goes by so quickly. I think it's 140 pages, maybe, maybe a little bit more. And so much happens. It takes you a while to get used to the pace of it. There is a fair bit of world building and you get little snippets of character building and other stuff, but it's just thrown in there where it can fit. And a lot of times you'll be introduced to something and want to know more about it. And you just have to trust eventually later on the book, there'll be a line about it or something. For me, I wish the book was twice as long or three times as long and spent more time on everything. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to learn about Hawk and Brekka's relationship. I wanted to learn about Yared and his involvement in the town of, in the town of Ernon. I think a lot of space could have been made even in the same amount of pages by cutting out some of the stuff that was not important, didn't change anything. Like the whole bridge scene could have been skipped if they had just gone with the merchants to begin with. Yeah, they didn't need to be captured and released and captured so many times yeah. if they was just going in the same direction. And uh, we could have just stayed with the Fellowship of the Ring and learned about the Fellowship of the Ring. We didn't need to be with the merchants or the Irvanese or the cannibal dwarves. And I think it would have helped a lot if Stark had formed uh, deeper relationships with those yeah. acquaintances. But... It just, um, I did really like the world building and I thought there was a lot there and it was like, it's like you have this background that's a beautiful, rich painting and then you have like these cardboard cutout characters on top of it. Well, I think in the, in the time they were given, they weren't, other than Stark, they were not, you know, one dimensional. They were given as many layers as you could with one paragraph per character. (laughs) Yeah, but Stark is boring. Stark is cool. (laughs) And he is the main character and we're following him along with his thoughts. And it just makes me think about um, like all the Conan stories. Like Conan, when you're in his head, is kind of (laughs) boring. But some of the stronger stories, they just introduce a new character you follow their struggles and then all of a sudden Conan shows up and he's a force that you experience. (laughs) (laughs) That that makes him cool. So I just thought the better book probably should have started with Gareth. Yeah, Gareth as main character is much better. And we're not 
We don't know anything about the Galactic Union. That's all comes later. She's young. She just had her first prophecy. It's yeah. scary. There's her mom like, just died. She's like trying to build like a network, start this revolt. And then all of a sudden, John Eric Stark like blows into town. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, I think that that would have been a lot better. <laughs> that would have been a lot better. But that wouldn't be a, a pulp action book in 140 pages. No, yeah. <laughs> This book mirrors Lord of the Rings in so many ways. <laughs> the Citadel is surrounded by the mountains of Mordor. Sauron and everyone in the party are the different members of the Lord of the Rings. They, they like hits all the same beats. They go to very similar places all the way um, along. It's basically the Lord of the Rings if instead of boring little Frodo who can't do anything and needs <laughs> Samwise to carry him everywhere. Instead of Frodo, you had, like, the Punisher. <laughs> like, Gandalf decides, I don't think a hobbit should take the ring. Look at this uh, killing machine over here. That guy seems the best to take the ring to Mordor. Yeah. Oh, my God. So who do you think this book is for? I liked this book, and I think me wanting a longer version is a is a good thing. I think that means it's, it's successful, maybe. If you read a book and you say, oh, I wish that was three times longer, that's probably <laughs> a successful book, right? Yeah. I think as long as you can allow for a pulpy action sci-fi and are willing to stick with Stark, the ultimate cool guy, uh, I think most people could enjoy this book. It'd take you, like, an hour and a half to read. <laughs> yeah. What about you? This book is definitely for people who love cool guys. <laughs> so most people, <laughs> as I said. <laughs> oh, I guess neither of us know anything about Game of Thrones, but there's a lot of internet theories about this book being a big influence on Game of Thrones. Oh. Apparently there's a guy named John Stark in Game of Thrones. Oh, and yeah. And there's a bunch huh. of competing factions like this one. Hmm. Just just so you know. Do you want to read more of these? We have the trilogy. Should oh. we read the rest of them? Or do you want would you want to? Or is the ginger star enough? I'm not super excited to go back to books two and three. I feel like I might, but it wouldn't be high on my list of priorities. What about you? Well, maybe if we need another short book, <laughs> this is better. This is the best of the short books we've read. <laughs> Compare this to Cosmozoids okay, and yeah. um, Next Stop the Stars. If there's ever a month where we feel like we can't handle, <laughs> this seems like a very easy choice to me. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, I think that's it for the Ginger Star. If you'd like to join us next month, we're reading Winter World by C.J. Mills. And you can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads. It seems like a trend where we're talking about other books at the end of the episodes. Mimi and I both read A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Well... I read the first half of this book twice. Oh, you know, you didn't finish it? <laughs> no. I finished it. 
And supposedly this is the ultimate dumpster book. So I figured we could talk about it a little bit here. You've been wanting to read this one for a while. Yeah, just to to know. It's recommended in so many places and it's considered such a classic sci-fi. And I just want to know what it was like. I don't know much about Edgar Rice Burroughs other than I think he's most famous for Tarzan. Yes, he created the Tarzan. A Princess of Mars is about a just lovely southern gentleman. Oh, yeah. His slaves love him. (laughs) Does he have slaves? I think so. Does it mention he has slaves? (laughs) I I think so. Oh, God. Well, uh, anyway, he's (laughs) transported to Mars, where he is basically Superman. Because gravity's less there, so he's got the muscles. Yeah, he's got Earth muscles. He's so strong, can jump so far. And Mars is covered with green bug aliens and human-looking people who are all very warlike and... He solves all their problems by just being a proper Southern gentleman. <laughs> he goes on adventures. He gets a alien dog that he loves, that he builds a trusting relationship with. He gets a hot alien girlfriend. He makes a, a best alien friend <laughs> and teaches people about loyalty and honor and, and bravery. <laughs> And and that's basically the book. If you want to read about uh, just a a very unassuming white guy being transported to a foreign place where he then fixes it with all his proper ways. Oh, my goodness. At what point do you want me to talk about how I felt about (laughs) my problems with it? Um, Well, I haven't been able to get through it. I've been listening to the audio book. Which is only six hours long. I should be able to finish this in two days with my commute. But um, I've tried two different audiobooks. And so I'm not sure whether it's the reader or the book itself. But the, the narration is so monotone. I loved the narrator. He's just the just the quaintest, nicest <laughs> Kentucky gentleman. He's from Virginia, right? Well, I don't know where the narrator's from. Oh, well, the character is from Virginia. Yeah. But I, I think that it's actually the book that's also <laughs> extremely monotone. Um, well, it's it's got that 1910s vernacular uh, tone, yeah. I guess. Um. So far, my favorite part is when he gets transported to Mars because so he and his friend are what in the middle of murdering some Indians and then his friend is injured and they're in a cave in the middle of like the Arizona desert. Uh, I think they're in the middle of getting murdered by Indians. Oh, okay. But weren't they out there to uh, murder Indians? No. Okay. Well, they were they were prospecting gold okay he's a, he's a prospector <laughs> okay should we not have that in there it's fine um so he and his injured friend are like lying in a cave and then he goes into this weird like out of body experience where he's like looking at his body on the ground wearing clothes but then he says that he's butt naked and the 
this like monotone reading of it like first person it sounded like like an alien abduction story where someone is describing their alien abduction yeah are you saying you liked that or it was just (sighs) (laughs) that was the most interesting part oh yeah i think i think i figured out what was really stopping me from enjoying this book there's no tension ever. There's no change in, like, just the level of this book. Like, he's on Mars for the first time, and he's encountering, like, like a Martian city, and there's he's seeing all these weird and strange things. And then the narration just stops telling you what's going on and starts telling you about how, like, oh, males and females of the species have different lengths of toes. Oh, females have slightly shorter tusks. <laughs> oh, like, they're about this many feet tall. And, like, there's just so much that's, like... Well, how are you supposed to imagine what these <laughs> aliens look like if they don't tell you how big their tusks are? Um... Give me a second. Yeah. Well, if you're not used to reading fantastic stories written before 1930, you're definitely not going to like this book. One of the most ridiculous parts is when we learn all about the eggs. It's like stuff is happening, kind of. And then all of a sudden, there's like a whole chapter that's just eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So just to read a clip from this. By careful selection, they rear only the hardiest specimens of each species, and with almost supernatural foresight, they regulate the birth rate to merely offset the loss by death. Each adult Martian female brings forth about 13 eggs each year, and those which meet size, weight, and specific gravity tests are hidden in the recesses of some subterranean vault where the temperature is too low for incubation. Every year, these eggs are carefully examined by a council of 20 chieftains and all but about 100 of the most perfect are destroyed out of each yearly supply at the end of five years about 500 almost perfect eggs have been chosen from the thousands brought forth these are then placed in the almost airtight incubators to be hatched by the sun's rays after a period of another five years the hatching which we had witnessed today was a fairly representative event of its kind all but about one percent of the eggs hatching in two days if the remaining eggs ever hatched We knew nothing of the fate of the little Martians. They were not wanted, as their offspring might inherit and transmit the tendency to prolonged incubation, and thus upset the system which had been maintained for ages and which permits the adult Martians to figure the proper time for return to the incubators almost to an hour. You didn't find that interesting? (laughs) No! (laughs) And that's not it. It goes on and on about these eggs. For a full chapter. I have never had a problem with information dumps in books. I am fully down to have the plot just stop and someone just tell me all the specifics about a thing. That is something that does not bother me at all. You're going to hate Moby Dick. i tell you that right now. I don't think I even have a problem necessarily with information dumps because like my favorite book is Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, which is like mostly information dumps. But all those kind of like contribute something, build the characters, kind of set up opportunities for, you know, 
connections to things. Right. Well, I don't think you got to the part where the all that information about the eggs comes up. Oh, no. Because it does. I just don't care about <laughs> eggs. <laughs> well, but you, you do later because uh. I don't think... We need to worry about spoiling it for people, but there's there's an alien who was born of love, <laughs> okay. and they have to do all the stuff with the eggs to oh. keep it from mixing with the other eggs, and <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, who do you think this book is for? <laughs> Not me. Yeah, not not me, me, clearly. And I think it's sort of advertised as a, a big adventure romp, but it is very slow until the very end. And it is very dated. So if you're not used to reading old fantasy stuff, it can be a bit jarring. But I think it is a good little window into dumpster sci-fi. Because I do see a lot of its tradition in these books we're reading now. However, I don't think it actually has the literary value people place on it. It's not It's not a good book. I don't think it's a bad book, especially compared to other pulp sci-fi. So, I don't know. If, if you think you would like A Princess of Mars, you would probably enjoy it. But if you're not sure, you probably won't enjoy it. Mm. What about you? Do you think anyone <laughs> would like this? Well, I don't know if I can really say until I finish it and find out the importance of the of egg the incubation eggs. period and <laughs> the percentages of eggs that survive and the number of eggs laid by each Martian mother. You didn't even get to the part where they talked about the air recycling stations. 